Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3CR.com. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody on this lovely Saturday morning. If you're listening to us by podcast, then uh, it's probably lovely weather there as well. Uh, This is Annie. Good morning, I'm Fiona. And uh, we've got an action-packed program for you today. We're going to kick off with uh, another piece from the Peter Norman Social Justice Forum, which was held on the 16th of the 10th. Uh, it's the 15th, uh, 50th anniversary of the salute at the 1968 Olympics. And uh, people, uh, the uh, Peter Norman Committee, there's a committee, uh, that they put together a social justice forum, which I think is going to become an annual event to uh, honour uh, the spirit of Peter Norman's uh, standing beside uh, the two uh, um, uh, black American athletes who uh, made the uh, social justice uh, salute on the podium on uh, after they won the 200-metre uh, race in the 1968 Mexican Olympics, causing a furore because... Uh, uh, the view was that politics shouldn't eat, uh, enter sport, but of course sport is all about politics. They were calling for uh, equal rights for black Americans and uh, Peter Norman stood beside them in solidarity. And uh, that message is what was being uh, talked about at the Social Justice Forum. Rob Starry, who you'd probably be aware of, is a uh, fearless uh, advocate for uh, people who are uh, under the pump when it comes to many of the uh, federal laws and state laws around uh, civil rights, uh, particularly uh, those people who have uh, are facing uh, the laws around terrorism and a whole range of other issues of that sort. Uh, spoke, was invited to speak, and uh, he gave a wonderful speech. Uh, and so we're going to hear what he said because it's really worth listening to. Now, I've got Robert Starry next. Now, Robert's my type of bloke, not because I'm a criminal, (laughs) (laughs) although some people would debate that, but uh, Robert's the type of bloke who never forgot where he came from. Now, there's a lot of high-flying lawyers in this state. You'd kind of give 10 grand a day to represent you, maybe 20 grand, maybe 30. But Robert is one of the foremost criminal barristers in this state, and he's forged that reputation by defending the undefendable, by looking after the rights of all human beings. And if you ever need a good lawyer for legal aid cost, he's the man. But what I like about Rob is he hasn't forgotten where he's come from. You know, you get the immigrant dream, you turn up here, 
your parents make good, they send you to university, you become a great criminal barrister and you turn up in a bloody checked shirt. You know, what went wrong, Rob? Characteristically very generous, Joe, so thank you very much. I will scold him in a moment, but firstly, can I also pay my respects to uh, Aboriginal elders past and present um, and to uh, those other members of the Aboriginal community here? Uh, and first, the first uh, thing I want to do in scolding um, Joe is when he talked about Caroline leaving to go to Footscray, why would she go to Footscray? Well, we know that it's the cultural and spiritual epicentre of Melbourne. <laughs> I having come from Footscray in the industrial west. And of course, it must be close to the Norman family as well, because uh, one thing uh, in terms of Peter's background, he was the running coach at the Western Bulldogs or Footscray Football Club. And that's just slightly behind his greatest um, uh, name to fame, of course, um, supporting. Carlos and Smith, but for Footscray supporters, it's just below that. <laughs> um, I have had an abiding interest in human rights law, um, really because of my background, I expect. My father was a post-war immigrant. He'd, he'd been a, in a prison of war camp in Russia uh, during the war. He'd been conscripted as a student um, into the Second World War in 1944. So right at the end, he was from Hungary. Um, and he was sent off um, with uh, any other um, young man capable of being recruited um, into the Eastern Front in Russia to fight with a retreating army that was being overrun by the Russians. And then, of course, um, as we know, uh, after the war, Russia occupied Hungary. Um, and then in 1956, of course, um, you'll all remember of the, or, or you'll be aware of the Hungarian Revolution in that year. That's the year that I was born. My mother, however, was from a traditional Scottish Presbyterian background. She was part of the Williamstown establishment. My grandfather was the general manager of Port Phillip Mills. And so when she met my father, who was teaching her German, um, and uh, they later married, she was effectively disowned. Um, because she had married a middle European Catholic um, and, he uh, and she was, of course, from a Scottish Presbyterian background. Um, having been disowned, uh, having lived in the western suburbs, having been then raised in a ministry of housing and state, I understood something of, um, of discrimination, of racism. Um, my father, to use the colloquial expression, it's not used it anymore, he was a wog, I think was the term, <coughs> and going to, excuse me, going to a Christian Brothers school in Yarraville um, when it wasn't a hipster village that it is now, when there were chemical industries, meatworks and all the other industry of the, the West. Um, there were the Irish Catholics and there were the Eastern European Catholics. Um, and so sectarianism, unfortunately, was alive and well um, when I grew up in the 60s. Uh, and fortunately, that's all dissipated. Nobody would ever think anything about um, someone from a, a, a Middle European background marrying someone from a, effectively a British background. But I did understand, I did understand that discrimination. And then um, somehow having got into Melbourne University, um, it was like going to a foreign country for me. 
um, because then I really did understand um, what uh, what um, a, a class society we really were in. I think we delude ourselves by saying we're a classless um, society, but in fact we weren't. Um, and then I was lucky enough to, to um, get into law and, and pass and um, with one of my other great contemporaries, um, Peter Gordon, who um, was a, went to secondary school with him and then we studied at the same time. And I know that, and you know that he's championed the cause of people who've suffered injuries, um, mesothelioma, um, uh, lidomide cases, all those really important cases where people have ultimately received justice. So 1968, I actually remember the event at Mexico Olympics because we were watching the, the Olympic highlights and my parents couldn't understand, now knowing what they had had to endure, why it was that um, Carlos and Smith were immediately expelled from the, um, the village after um, making their salute for, for black rights or civil rights. And I understand that Peter Norman had worn a United Nations Human Rights Project badge, if I've got that correct. Um, he didn't wear a glove, um, uh, and you'll know that um, both um, Carlos and Smith, one wore, they only had one pair of gloves between them at the time. One wore one on the left hand, the other wore the other on the right hand, and Peter wore the, the United Nations Human Rights Project badge. And we know that in that period, um, 1968, we'd had the Prague Revolution in the year before, we had Paris riots from students, we knew that we were in a, a period of great social change. And um, uh, there was resistance to the Vietnam War in the United States growing, there was the rise of Martin Luther King and the other great um, black leaders and activists in that period. So they were, they were times of great change. And we enjoyed those periods of great change. Um, and when we now reflect in, 19, uh, sorry, in 2018, 50 years later, how have we progressed? Well, we've progressed probably in some ways, but we've also regressed in other ways. Um, Lydia alluded to the fact that um, we have no Bill of Rights. We don't have a Bill of Rights. Um, I remember John Howard saying that we should trust in the supremacy of Parliament. Um, we don't need, we can rely on what was called the common law. Um, well, as, as a lawyer who practices in criminal law, but human rights law, I've seen how those that are most marginalised, those that are most oppressed and repressed, um, can't rely on the, can't rely on the supremacy of Parliament, can't rely on the common law. I'll give you this example. Um, since 2002, in July of that year, um, after the horrors of the 9-11 um, uh, attack and the Bali bombings, Australia has enacted more pieces of counter-terrorism legislation than any other country. More than the US, more than the UK, more than any other country. And one of the reasons is that the UK and the European Union and the US all have a form of Bill of Rights or they have human rights protections. There's a Human Rights Act that governs um, the UK. They have overarching rights of freedom of expression, freedom of association um, and, and uh, freedom of political will. And we don't have those um, specific rights. When I grew up, although coming from the background that I came from, 
um, we learned about Irish nationalism going to Christian Brothers School. We talked about the reunification of Ireland. Then when I was at university, we talked about the invasion of East Timor and how we could then try and support the Timorese in their struggle for independence. Um, and we were aware of the struggle of apartheid that's been referred to, um, the liberation um, of the black people in South Africa. And in the current climate, in the current context, and particularly in the context, for instance, of support for the West Papuan um, movement, um, you would be prohibited from expressing any support for any self-determination struggle under the current legal regime. One of the examples we have, for instance, is those that support the, um, the Tamil struggle in uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, we knew um, that in 2010, at the behest of the Sri Lankan government, um, the uh, government of Australia had decided that they would charge three people who were representatives of the Tamil community who were organising humanitarian relief um, in what was a very bloody um, and, and merciless civil war. Um, because it was an offence to provide any ideological, religious or political support for any government or for any organisation against a sovereign government. And so the Tamil minority um, in Sri Lanka weren't able to organise and provide that necessary humanitarian relief where they were effectively strangled and, suffo and suffocated, particularly towards the end of that civil war in May of 2009, where you might remember there were 40,000 people who were killed. Um, and so um, in the 61 pieces of legislation that we've adopted, um, we don't have any of those basic fundamental freedoms that have been enshrined. We, curiously, we do in Victoria under our Charter of Rights and Responsibilities, but we don't at a, at a broader, more uh, broader um, federal level. We know that people, for instance, have been charged in, in, in Australia when they've come back from fighting against ISIS um, for the Kurdish cause. The West has aligned itself with the Kurdish struggle. The West militarily um, and um, uh, and in other ways, financially and physically, provide support for the Kurdistan Workers' Party or the YPG or um, whatever the, the organisations are, are identified as, in the struggle in North Syria, in North Syria to um, expel ISIS from those various um, hotspots, including Raqqa. So if you were a person of Kurdish origin, and, and this is not a minority group, we're talking about 40 million Kurds <coughs> who, by quirk of fate, don't have their own homeland, thanks to the West. Um, uh, if you support, provide any support, even if it's just humanitarian relief, you go to any of those locations, you are committing an offence against Australian law. And so we have these really repressive laws um, that have been put in place to prevent um, any Australian national going to any of those places or provide any support either domestically here or internationally. So that's one thing that's concerned me. 61 pieces of legislation unsurpassed in any other country. 
But critically, what's now happened in terms of that legislation, we've seen how that's been transposed in our own domestic use, and it's been transposed in an industrial level. We know, for instance, there are organisations like the Australian Building and Construction Commission, um, the Australian Consumer and Competition, Consumer Competition Commission, that can now coercively compel people to give evidence where they've removed any right against any self-incrimination, self where they've removed any right against any presumption of innocence, where they can coercively compel them to answer questions. We don't have that in any other Western country. We have it here. And we have it here because there's been bipartisan support for it. No one has said, other than people within the academic community and a few troublemakers like Joe and I, um, have said, you know, we need to be careful about these laws. We, we need proper accountability, accountability, transparency. We need to protect individual rights. Part of the other advancement of, uh, of these laws at a domestic level is that we see now before the parliament um, there is an obligation on telcos to provide access to anyone's um, electronic devices. Um, so there is no protection, there is no encryption. Um, government and its agencies can and do access all of that information. So I couldn't, for instance, um, write to my colleagues and say, um, you know what, we better get um, Joe on board and um, we better foment counter-revolutionary um, practices here because we'd be in trouble. Not only is there no protection of your communications, but now there's a capacity to read everything um, at the same time the communication takes place. So if you think Big Brother is monitoring you, if you think um, uh, Brave New World and, and um, George Orwell's prophecy about um, government control uh, is about to take place or is taking place, you're correct. And unless we get a Bill of Rights that affords, affords us genuinely um, a right of association, a right of an expression of political will, um, uh, and protects our um, right against self-incrimination, our presumption of innocence, steadily eroded by state governments, again on a bipartisan way, and federal governments, then we will be in a vastly different country to what we had in 1968. We had vastly more freedoms in that period than we do now. Um, so um, small gestures are important. Um, when Peter Norman stood on the dais and said, I, I will stand with you, um, that's a small gesture in, um, in the scheme of things, but it does reverberate and it does provide inspiration for people who work in human rights and criminal justice like me. I want to say something else about, the, the, um, about human rights, how it impacts upon us more immediately, and that's within the prison system. Um, we currently have 7,200 men in prison. When I started work, we had 2,200 people in prison. We had 37 women in prison, and they were housed at the Fairley Women's Prison in Fairfield. We've now got over 600 women in prison. But there's been this exponential increase in the prison population. And you might say, well, I read the Herald Sun every day, and I know we're in the grip of a crime wave. 
But what you don't then do um, is that you don't read the statistics of the Sentence and Advisory Council or Corrections Victoria, which says that crime is actually reducing and serious crime has reduced every year for 12 years. Um, we know um, that um, crime rates have dropped in one year, in the current year, 10%. And so when we face a law and order auction in the state election, we say, well, really, are we, in the, are we truly in the middle of a crime wave? Um, Stuart Bateson, who's the um, superintendent or the in police command, uh, in, uh, in Victoria, he works in community engagement. He says quite fairly and candidly that Victoria is probably safer than it's ever been. And yet if you ask people, their public perception is that um, we're in the middle of a, a, some crime rate. And what do they point to? They point firstly to the South Sudanese. And they say about the South Sudanese because they see graphic images on TV that are re repeated and repeated and repeated in news cycles. Um, of young teenagers smashing cabinets and stealing jewellery. They say, it's out of control. But the raw numbers are very low. The South Sudanese community represent less than half a percent of the state population. What they don't tell you is that the South Sudanese are underrepresented in sexual assault cases. They're underrepresented in domestic violence cases they're underrepresented in dishonesty offences. So we have the images that are graphic, unquestionably, but it doesn't actually represent the reality. Um, and they don't say to you that the three people who organised the smash and grabs in Elstonwick are jewellers who then paid each of those young men $50 to steal the jewellery, who dutifully returned the jewellery to them um, and then melted the jewellery that's the, the organisers, um, and then send it to Israel within 24 hours. Nothing said in the media about the role of those people who organised um, that, uh, that crime. But what are we left with? We're left with the lasting impression of South Sudanese men going wild, um, and, and you know, it was horrific, um, going wild smashing cabinets. But we don't get the full picture and we don't get the full story. We get snippets. So uh, I suppose my plea to you is to, um, and I'm grateful um, for the opportunity of, of being here, and I'm, and I'm certainly humbled by it, I must say that. I'm grateful for the opportunity of being here and being able to talk to you about those issues because it's, um, I'll use this term loosely, it's the congregations like you um, that are so important in forming um, opinion because we don't get it um, uh, in the current structure because Everybody's too scared to say anything, to speak out against, to, to challenge the figures, to challenge the perceptions, um, because uh, they will lose votes if it's a law and order um, election. And, and um, I'm afraid an evidence-based, statistic-based um, argument cannot lie. So thanks very much for the opportunity, and thank you to the, the Norman family, and thank you that he, he um, was one of the running coaches of the great Western Bulldogs Football Club. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? 
Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Are you going to back announce? You're back on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, on the line we've got Lizzie Kunoth. G'day, Lizzie. Hello, Lizzie. Hi, good morning. <laughs> good morning, Lizzie. Welcome uh, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for taking the time this no morning problem. to chat with yeah. us. No worries, my pleasure. Uh, so you um, presented, you, you uh, delivered a chat at a forum, a community forum, um, a few weeks ago on the topic of um, um, working working with a range of people towards educational excellence in Victoria for African um, communities. So there there were lots of people at that forum, um, and uh, you you were one of them. And could you just tell us a little bit about the forum and what and what was what you what what you presented? Yeah. Um, so the forum was um, for the Sudanese community, and it's about how um, we can yeah how we can help. Sudanese people integrate into um, the Australian educational system. And we spoke about some of the barriers that makes it really hard for uh, South Sudanese kids um, really get the most of, um, most get, get the most out of um, schooling. Um, I shared my personal experience uh, coming into the country at 13 years um, not speaking English and and having to to not only learn the language but ending up being in year nine and and and, and just the difficulty of not only being able unable to to um, speak the language but actually also um, being expected to work at the same pace as kids who were born here who've been to primary school and 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 know um, the school system, so it's really difficult for for me personally to, yeah, to 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 really get the most out of um, my high school experience. That that, that must so, have been extremely difficult for you. Well, Lizzie, did they oh, not? Oh, absolutely, very. Did, did did they not have um, a language program for you to help you learn the language um, alongside yeah, well, your mainstream classes? Yep. Uh, well, I mean, because I came to the country as a refugee on a humanitarian visa in 2005, and part of part of it is um, attending a language school for. Um, I mean, I attended for half a year, uh, and and I sort of so they. I think you can. I think the maximum is a year. How come you didn't um, extend it? No, nah, I don't think. Uh, I think it's um, there's a limit to it. You don't do it for like forever. You, yeah, they give you a set of time to do it. And because uh, I came in 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 March and I was able to start immediately, so I went to um, language center and I uh, um, for actually yeah, for the whole of the for the whole of that year. And uh, then I then was sent to the mainstream school uh, the next. On the next year. So, Lizzie. So, Lizzie, the yeah. w- what this means, of course, is one one you speak English well now. Uh, um, <laughs> I well, thank you. I appreciate it. Though honestly, though, there are, there are times where 
I mispronounce words. I mean, I'm, I, I honestly feel like I'm still learning every day. Uh, but but thank you, I do appreciate it. So so what that means though is that for a young person, uh, you you all your abilities and all your skills and all the rest of it have been thrown into being able to speak a language and then come a grips to the schooling system and that must then have an effect on your outcomes, where you're allowed to go and study in the future and being able to fulfil your personal dreams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because look, um, I left home, I was, you know, really young and and lived in Asia as a refugee but had no access to schooling or, you know, any form of education. So when I came here, I had high expectation of myself. You know, I saw it as a great opportunity to finally, you know, um, become this person that I've always wanted to be. Um, my mom was a nurse, but, you know, died uh, when I was five, so I've always sort of aspired to be someone who would grow up to be, um, um, you know, this smart person. So a I contributor to society. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, and, and obviously I saw that, only through education um, am I ever able to actually become that person. Um, so the struggles, struggle for me was that um, obviously the way teachers would mark students is based on how well they perform, uh, not actually how how much um, you know how much faith you have in yourself. It's, it's or really, your capabilities, you know. really. Yeah, yeah, and 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 like I mentioned, I. Honestly, I couldn't even say hi in English when I came. And and so the whole of my first year at high school, um, it was me trying to understand people. It wasn't even about writing. It was even talking. So when teachers speak in classroom, I try to listen and, and try to understand what they're talking about. Um, so only in, my, only in year 10 was I actually able to then um, understand a bit. And, and, and that's the year where you pick your, you know, your subject for that would then um, lead to a career, you know, lead to further studies. So um, I was encouraged to do recal. Um, I mean, my understanding of recal at the time was that, you know, no one cares. It, it basically means you failed. So I, there was no one really there to guide me throughout my high school years. And my grandmother, who raised me, um, you know, she never had, you know, she's illiterate. So it wasn't like I had any sort of support in that space, like at home or anything like that. So I remember really being upset and just saying, no, I, I want to be a journalist, so I need to go to university, so I've got to do VCE. And all my teachers were like, I mean, I understand now that they were trying to support me and try and, and just so that I would really struggle. But what I saw was that they were trying to push me to a direction that would mean that I will not succeed in life and, and I saw VCAL as a path of failure and not success and, and a lot of parents still see that. So, so, so are I, you saying that, would I be right in saying that you thought that the educational process that was offered to you was a bit unrealistic it was, and yeah. that it would have been better if there had been, it had been handled differently? Oh, absolutely. One thing that I thought was really unfair was that uh, you are placed in a space because of age, not your ability. Yep. 
Um, so I came here. Um, so in 2006, yeah, I must have been 14, turning 15, and so I was placed in the same age group. So which meant I had to be in year nine. Um, yeah, that, yeah, it's foolish. I, let's say, yeah. So if I went to year seven, for example, maybe it would have given me uh, time to, because I've never learned English grammar or anything like that. So uh, you know, and then suddenly I'm expected to write essays. You know. Yeah, yeah. And I, so, 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 um, this forum that was held—that's what you were, yeah. your group of people were discussing and looking for yeah. answers, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And because um, also, I mean, the 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 question: Why is it that? Um, so we came here about thirteen years ago, and some have come here fifteen years ago, but their younger siblings have faced similar challenges. Uh. So they, yeah, they're like, wait, you know. Uh, obviously, our problem was that we didn't speak the language, we didn't understand the culture, uh, you know, within the school or the way it worked. But these kids are born here; they went to primary school, high school. But why is it that they're still not achieving good results? Like, yeah, their well, outcomes are, are are the same. Absolutely, and a lot of them have are actually. So I don't want to sort of exaggerate, and obviously, I don't really have any data here to. But because I work at school, uh, I've seen. Uh, first-hand experience how these kids are disengaged and and I saw that there are a number of reasons and I know that um, families how families could do better in terms of engaging with schools but I also feel really uh, that um, a gap when it comes to cultural understanding can present real issues for example you know we come from a culture where we like to you know, to be together, you know, and, and so, and that's been stigmatized, you know, and, and uh, we are often referred to as African gang in the media. So stuff like that really um, can isolate kids at school and teachers can just feel the need to be like, join group, break out, don't be in groups. But this is kids that feel comfortable with each other, you know. And, oh, and, and, and also and it's that, a very human thing to do. I mean, it's well, not... Exactly, yeah, yeah. So they all, they often feel, you know, they are not part of, the school community, and that I saw as a uh, as a major factor in, in how well they are involved in the school. And are there are there strategies that are being talked about to uh, one break down these barriers, yes. and also because I can see it as being a two way street because uh, yes. the Sudanese cultural experience can offer so much to the rather restrictive Australian norm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, um, since starting, so I work at St. Francis Xavier College, so it's uh, one of the largest um, Catholic schools. And I started working last year, and I saw that, you know, um, uh, the Sudanese family were disengaged, like, completely. And, and that was a problem, you know. They, and, they, and another problem, they were often called in when there was a major concern, like something that happened yeah. and... It's big. It's not even just your minor. Stuff. No, no, no. Something. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they, and so they felt like they were the other, and and and, and so they were. That they were fire connected. people putting out fires. Yeah, yeah. And they thought their kids were being picked on. So when I came in, um, I said, "Well, wait a minute. Hang on here. Um, your kid did a, a thing that's terrible, and they need to. You know, the school is supposed to be a safe environment. So let's work together. You know, let's come in." meet, you know, meet the principal, work with us, you know, work with school. So it's building that partnership, uh, I think, is a really important process. I think it's an important step toward building trust 
and seeing how parents can, um, you know, sort of support their kids even when things don't go right. Are you getting positive outcomes? I am, yeah, I am. So um, I often call home and explain in my language. So I find that um, cultural liaison officers have been a, a real success, you know, giving people from the community a space in the school to help navigate, you know, not just culture but also the language. Um, so uh, I saw that as a good thing, and I'm seeing other schools also uh, employing um, cultural liaison officers because our role can, you know, vary from um, translator to support person to a person that bridges the gap uh, by, you know, explaining things in meetings because uh, I've been in a meeting where things have been miscommunicated, like misunderstood, and it, the results are usually tragic. Like yeah, catastrophic. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, no, Lizzie, we're, yeah. We're, we haven't got very little time, and um, I'll tell you, thank you very much for talking to us no, today. No yeah, and no we'd love to keep in contact so that we can understand more about uh, yeah. the process that you're going through yeah, and yeah. your community's sure. going through. No worries, yeah. Well, thank you so much for reaching out to me. The 2018 Autonomy and Resistance Gathering, a three-day conference on Indigenous and grassroots struggles across Latin America, Asia-Pacific and beyond. Topics include decolonisation, land defence from multinationals, autonomy and self-determination, prisons and criminalisation, visions for development beyond neoliberal capitalism, colonialism and patriarchy. Speakers including Christy Lee Horsewood from the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Mariki Onis from the Jafarong Embassy, Bazak Gel, Kurdish activist from the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre and much more. November 2nd, 3rd and 4th at Trades Hall in Melbourne, Nam. For more information, look up Autonomy and Resistance Gathering 2018 on Facebook. Proud 3CR supporter. This is Iri Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. And you're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And we've got lots of people in the studio now. We've got Fiona, we've got Tilly, and we've got a, another guest. It's a full house. A full house. And the uh, person we've got to speak to us is Warren Kirk. G'day, Warren. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, and the reason for why Warren's here is because he's uh, Scribe. It's Scribe, isn't it? It's your publisher? Yes. Yeah, Scribe has uh, just published a new book by Warren, which is called Suburbia. And it's images of Melbourne, uh, a Melbourne that's fast disappearing, I'll have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's my thing. That's what I do. Yeah, tell us about why you do it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, a, it it's a really difficult question to answer. I mean, it's probably multi, multi-layered. Um, I like old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like storytelling. I, I love the process of photographing and I love the way I can explore with the camera. Yeah, um, and I'm um, also time traveling. Well, and, and uh, doing what I what I'm doing, which you know, which is interesting from, yeah, from yeah, my yeah. point of view. So people's li- un- uncovering people's lives. I love going to old factories that you know have probably unchanged for thirty, forty, fifty years, and living spaces the same. But and and recording it um, for pros- posterity, but just for I mean, in a way, I'd just do it for myself. 
Yeah, well, but at the, you know, there's a large, larger audience from that. But ultimately, in a way, I'm just doing it for myself because I love doing it. Is it a book mostly of photos? Or it's it all photos. All photos, except for an intro by William McGuinness. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's just a straight photo book, which is a little bit difficult to to create in Australia because we don't have a, a great history of photo books. They're more mm. sort of like um, tabloidian, a lot, a lot of photography that people see in, in Australia where they've got a story attached or... Yeah. Whereas this is just like more like a European or American book where it's just, yep, one photo page, one photo page, that's it. That's I imagine it. The, the photos... Are, the, the photos, photos speak is, for themselves. That's right, yeah, they that's tell it. a story. They don't need any augmentation, although I do get people complaining that they would like to know more about the people in in the photos. Well, it's funny, you know, because uh, the, uh, the William McGuinness intro is a, is a signpost because what he's talking about is something that everybody who lives in Melbourne will be really aware of as we're in the midst of a building boom. And whole you, you go on the tram and all of a sudden a whole block is erased, completely erased. But what you're doing, and and he notes this in his forward, that um, how attractive your book is because with each, it's a beautifully produced book, uh, easy to look at, uh, easy on the eyes. Each page is a full colour s- a plate. And uh, if you live in Brunswick, I'd say Brunswick, uh, also out in, uh, you've taken shots out in uh, uh, Caulfield around there or somewhere Yeah, Murrumbina. Murrumbina, yeah. Carnegie, yeah. Ormond, yeah. yeah That's yeah, right. I'm yeah, not, uh, yeah. Because I'm looking at these shots and I'm thinking, ah. Oh, I know that place, mm. Coburg, the, yeah. these just fantastic uh, – and I think the same thing as you. Uh, I think, oh, my God, uh, it's uh, it, it's going to disappear and no one will see it for in its full glory. And you do imagine what it must have been like when people were going to that milk bar and it was the corner shop mm. and everybody in around there would go there. Well, yeah, it was a completely different way, way of life, obviously, you know, and yeah, it's not coming back. And there's only, I guess what I'm trying to do is just find the last little remnants, because that's all they are, remnants, and and document them before they do go. Yeah. yeah and I guess that, yeah, it's, I've said it before, to, it's like panning for gold, you know, sometimes you find something on a day and other days you don't, but it's, you know, there's little, there are little gems still out there, so it's just a matter of discovering them. I find yeah. that uh, other, uh, another element in your book is the um, multicultural nature of the history of these suburbs. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, definitely a lot of Italian, Greek um, people um, f- featured or I come across, yeah, especially, especially the areas that, I, that, are, that are more visually interesting, like sort of Brunswick, Coburg, um, yeah, those sort of... S- Slight, uh, I don't know. Well, older the suburbs that I guess they're post, you know, post-war, straight up in the fifties, sixties, when all the housing was happening. So that's where a lot of Greeks and Italians, etc., were, were living. So yeah, and they have interesting front yards, or they yeah, know, yeah, etc. They're so, like yeah. still lives of a whole life. Mm. That's what they are, aren't they? These yeah. photos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they sort of encap. Well, they they tell a story on so many different levels. I I, I guess. Um, and what people can read into it. And how do you choose when to place someone in the photograph or when to just let the interior or exterior talk? 
Well, the, the their surroundings is always really important to me, so I don't sort of isolate. I'm not interested in just photographing someone's head. I'm interested in what surrounds them. So I'm always wanting to get their, their surroundings. And I don't generally... I usually would ask them just to sit in their favourite chair, or, but I'm not into photographing somebody in the way I think they should be. I want them to be themselves. So Within I, the space. Yeah, so I don't... The only thing I'll, I'll ever ask people is, is to say, oh, it's not like... Uh, I don't want to see a camera face. I don't want to see your happy, smiling... I just want to see photograph you. Yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not yeah, a so, family pic. So, so, yeah, and I'll, I'll say to older... Well, most of them, they're older anyway, but I'll say, like, like the photos you've seen of your parents or grandparents, you know, so it's not this sort of, you know, yeah... You're Putting present. on the dog. Yeah, yeah, just want to see your normal face. That's it. And, and some people I don't have to say it to it. And a lot of, again, European people are inc- so incredibly comfortable in their skin that they, you, you just, so I'm setting, I set up and they're just, they're perfect the way they are. They just present, they're not, tr- they are just themselves. There was a picture yeah, of Franco yeah. Cozzo in his uh, runner shoes. Yeah. And I, and I showed it to my sister and said, oh, yeah, he's got bunions. <laughs> and I hadn't thought. I just thought that was his fashion style. <laughs> <laughs> but he's in a suit. Yeah, and, yeah, and, well, and but it, it's all mixed media. Like the suit, nothing really matches anyway. It was just classic. But yeah, 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 absolutely and, classic. Yeah, it, yeah, the clamor never lies. <laughs> he's always had a clashing style. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's so cute, uh, and that's what uh, I mean. How long have you been doing this sort of thing? Um, I've been photographing thirty years. <clears throat> but in the last, say, 10, I do it every day because I got to a sort of point in my life where, well, I'm starting to become unemployable. and So you just want to do what you want to do. That's it. It was like... Well, but it was that thing where I can't, I'm, can't, I'm sick and tired of doing what other people want. I won't be told. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I was sort of working freelance in, in, in the film industry, so you're still being told. Um, but, but I think... It, so it was like... Deciding that it was, I needed to do it. More important, not like I said, I didn't want to get to eighty and go. Oh, geez, I should have done more of that. But also, digital getting to the stage where it will. I, I transferred from di- film to digital because to do what I do now with film, it would just it would cost me. I just couldn't afford to do it. Mm. I couldn't afford to do it. I've got on my computer. I think it's since in the last ten years, I've shot over forty thousand. I haven't. I've shot more than that, but what I what I have edited down to is over forty thousand images. Well, imagine shooting that in film and then storing it. So, you know, so the digital came along at a really good time for me as well. So it's like, okay, I'll shoot digitally. I want to do this every day. So yeah, so it's a perfect sort of. In and, in a sort of way, uh, the shots are a little bit. It threw me back a little bit to uh, you know uh, what's that. Uh, the Alno Fini, you know, the uh, Flemish painters with the uh, two figures for, that have got surrounded by the world that they're in as uh, marriage shots. They send them to okay. each other. No, I'm not familiar with this. No. Oh, it's just that it's perfect. The, the, the quality of the pictures are very sharp and uh, full of detail. Uh, and um, you can get lost in any one of the shots in your books. Yeah, well, I love the details. I love looking in the, you know, see what's in the corner there and what people, you know, what just the 
how they decorate their houses or the things in the like. There's a how do you get into their houses? You just charm. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to say. Who's this strange chap? Well, it doesn't necessarily happen. You know, instantly you've got to sort of chat to people or maybe I'm. You know, I'll photograph somebody in their front yard and then go back and you know then they'll. Yeah, so it's it's you got to create some sort of relationship. And also, with, I suppose um, having someone, an audience to their lives, they've spent a lot of time. Some of the front yards that you've got are just so beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah, amazing! Just um, cr- incredible creations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and there was another one I wanted to um, ask you about. There's a shot in one of the uh, houses over a um, wooden fence is hanging a carpet that's got oh, yeah. Elvis. Elvis on it. It's just such a classic shot. Yeah, just... Was that luck? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's all luck. Yeah, nothing nothing is ever got my hand in it. It's just observational. Every, yeah, I mean, that was what would, is what I would describe. What I do is it's just sort of I'm an observer, silent observer, and that's, again, why I don't want to tell people how to be because I want to be observational. That was the same. I was just driving along. It was near, near my place and there's Elvis. I, th- I think what had happened is he, he, he either... He was clean- banging, cleaning it. No, no, I think, yeah, he washed it. I think. Yeah, it was and ha- it was hang gold. Up to, hanging up to dry. So, it was yeah. like gold lame so, uh, in the middle of suburbia. It, uh, yeah, it was just fairly humorous <laughs> thing. To- and sub- suburbia is full of humorous things if you open your eyes. Or su- and it was surreal almost. Yeah. You know, there's just... Um, yeah, it's an odd, odd place, the normal world. Yeah. <laughs> really, really. What was the, um, I'm just wondering what was the process for the houses that you went to in Coburg and Brunswick and that you went inside to and met the people? Did you select really old houses? Was that the, the thought? No it's, oh, no, it's just serendipity. I'll just see, see somebody in their front yard and start chatting to them and ask if I can photograph them and tell them what yeah. I do. And, you know, I get, I get the occasional knockback, but... So it's, yeah, so it's not like a formal pro. pro it's very ad hoc. Mm. And the, and because we're coming to the end of our time, I uh, there's two questions. Uh, do I uh, do people suggest places for you to go? And, Occasionally, yeah, very, yeah, not as much as I'd like. Yeah, really. Well, I've got a yeah, couple. Occasion. Okay, good. You can, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Me great. too. Okay, yeah, yeah I, I grew up in you. the northern suburbs, so. No, that's right. That in the might. Italian community, so yeah. I could recommend some. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. For the, for the next yeah, book. Yeah, terrific. <laughs> <laughs> and Lauren, um, why did you decide to put it all together in a book? Where did the idea of like, making a book oh, come I, from? Well, I just, I've, I was actually buying photography books before I even started photographing. I don't know. I just There's something about a, a, a larger collection of images. I, mean, I don't know. I find the sort of the art world and hanging things on walls and people standing around and looking at them <laughs> a bit... I don't know, there's something a bit sort of... Sterile. Yeah, something a bit elitist or all of those types of things. Whereas I find a book is much more intimate. You have it for a long time. You do an exhibition and you don't sell stuff and then you got to like take it home and then what do you do with it? Sort of. So so a book is, to me is a beautiful collection, way to have a collection of images. And a lot, you know, there's 156, I think, in the book. So you obviously, compared to if you had an exhibition, you'd have 20 or 30. So you, you see a far wider range of 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 the work you have it for maybe you know 20 30 years the book or whatever or it's handed down or whatever but it just has a life of its own it's just a you know i just think it's a much better way for for work for my work to be seen how do people get it 
It's called Suburbia. Bookshop, all good bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'll give a little plug to my local. It's Into the Sun because it's only sort of coming out, being delivered because it's supposed to be released on Monday. But the Sun Bookshop does actually have some in Yarraville when I... Went down and signed some yesterday, so. Oh, that's sweet. But yeah, but it will. It's you know, and online as well. But support your, you know, your bricks and mortar shops. But is yeah, it? in yeah, in books bookshops all around the place. Is that Nether Sun Theatre? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I yeah, Sun yeah. Theater. Yeah, that's the Sun Bookshop. Yeah. Yeah, you can't miss My it. My mates there. Yeah. Yeah, it's great because that's a great segue. We had a person who was brought up in Arrowville before it became a haven for. Um, Yes, yes, yes. Whatever, whatever. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, yes uh, a late. Well, I've been there twenty five years, so I'm sort of, you know. But there's lots of people. But funnily enough, I photographed a bloke who was in my first book called Westography. I don't know if you knew I, I had a, a book before this, which mm, yeah, was just did, on did, the Western side. Well, you yeah. couldn't possibly have just done one book. <laughs> so, <of> this. <clears throat> the, yeah, there's a bloke in the first book who actually owned the milk bar that is now the Sun Bookshop. So he had a milk bar in there. Yeah. There in the 50s. Cool. This is classic. Wow, what a yeah. history. Yeah. All right, thanks very much for coming in, Thanks Warren. for coming in, Warren. Pleasure. Thank you. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when we started off with big supremo scuttlebim more lash son in the team, assuring us they had heard what the electorate said and would heed the lesson after they lost the safest blue ribbon seat in the country. A battle between caring business class endorsed versus caring business class not endorsed. And we can confidently assure those concerned scuttlebim once he's cleaned himself up from the juggling disaster. Remember, we left scuttlebim last week lying in a pile of excrement after failing the impossible task of foot-juggling a huge collection of contradictions. Assure those concerned, once he's cleaned himself up, scuttle them and the team will survive her concerns for climate change, if there is such a thing as climate change, with the help of the socialists who will swallow their differences, which are the first says there's no such thing as climate change, so we don't need to threaten the delicate flower of the economy, doing anything about that which doesn't exist. And the second says, no, no, climate change is real, but we don't need to threaten the delicate flower of the economy doing anything serious about it, just a few little cosmetic treatments to show we care. Or on our concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats policy with the help of the socialists who share the policy, other than, as we also said last week, the socialists promising to torture those seeking refuge with compassion. It's reassuring to have real choices, isn't it? Given history repeats itself, it's also reassuring to note that after similar electoral disasters, when the dedicated practitioners of parliamentary democracy always assure us they have heard what the electorate has said and would heed the lessons they never do. To be fair, this government may break the mould as it has immediately promised to assist the most needy in our society, the very victims of its caring business class policies, introducing a $5 billion Dole Relief Fund, an exciting boon to the unemployed. Although the timing is interesting, as last week we learned we have full employment now that we have 5% unemployment, which in itself which in itself is a microcosmic form, reflects the logic of the greatest little economic order of them all. But exciting news. Sorry, sorry, what was that? Why? Well, I haven't seen you for a while on the back bench there. It's the new daddy, former Hayseed and Cheap Shit Party Big Supremo Barnacle. Not doll relief, it's, it's, oh, drought relief. Sorry, Barnacle. 
So Barnacle, for the full employment unemployed, the drought goes on. Yes, yes, I agree with that, Barnacle. The best form of welfare is a job. And we simply can't afford to support all these budgets. No, good point, good point. Yesterday, the ABC breakfast announcer told us she had conducted an interview with Barnacle about the five billion handout we could afford, and I thought, gee, sorry I missed that. Wouldn't that have been in-depth stuff? Then, of course, the government and its socialist opposite delivered an apology to the victims of institutional sex abuse, and seriously, we laud that, although we could say none too soon. And they said they would do all they can to assist the victims, so many as they reach old age remaining blighted for life. Uh, so you'll give them the full compensation package recommended by the Royal Commission. Almost all we can. Meanwhile, as anyone who has slightly criticised US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, as if anyone could find anything to criticise Donald over, slightly criticised, has received a pipe bomb in the mail and Donald said it was down to the fake media which had divided the nation. Uh, but, but, but how have they done that, Donald? By reporting what I say and what I tweet, the biggest divide the nation ever. Uh, but, but how is that fake news? Because um, it means what they're reporting is fake. And on which Donald said and tweeted this slow-moving caravan, a pedestrian caravan of Central American refugees, were Middle Eastern terrorists. And when asked how he knew yet again, he made satire redundant. I have no proof, but they could be. I mean, how do we compete with that? This version upon version of what happened in the Saudi embassy began with Donald declaring he would bomb evil Iran into the ground until he discovered it was his very, very, very close friend Saudi and therefore he needed more information. And then Donald thought maybe he should say if the more information showed the Saudi Democrats had had a bit to do with the murder, the US would respond with harsh measures, not so harsh, of course, as denying them the billions of dollars of trained killer merchants of death merchants they buy off the US of, but he rang his very, very close friend, the Crown Prince, and told him the US of opposed going around the world killing people we don't like, and the Crown Prince told him he too opposed going around the world killing people we don't like, and because they so opposed going around the world killing people they don't like, the pair of liberty, freedom and democracy lovers bemoaned that the, that the one hand had been forced to contain China's aggression of wanting to sail in those US of war off China, and the other forced to destroy Yemen, and Donald's next unequivocal principled explanation via the Crown Prince was some rogue assassins infiltrated the embassy, and Donald would hit those rogue assassins with the harshest measures ever for embarrassing his very, very close friend, the Crown Prince. We pointed out the embassy would be a soda to infiltrate for any self-respecting rogue assassin. Assassin, especially on the very day a bad guy dissident had been invited in for a chat and a bit of murder, making it hard to believe that no one seems to believe this version. Because given the dissident didn't look like a man at the peak of fitness, the latest version of this version, that he died accidentally while involved in a brawl with 
with the rogue heavies, obviously dealing with the one-by-one Jackie Chan style until some rogue non-assassin got in a lucky punch, sounds specially plausible. So plausible, Donald says, yes, he could believe that version of that version, and Saudi has promised to conduct a full investigation into itself, which should sort it all out. Because the crown prince had absolutely nothing to do with it, and says it feels Jamal Khashoggi's family's pain as much as they do, perhaps even more. It's painful that a simple little assassination has been treated so seriously. It, it challenges a government's independent rights. It's no one else's business. But the guilty would be punished. Perhaps evil women throwing off their burkas and impersonating thick, thuggish-looking men. Thus, we look forward to this week's version of the versions, and then next week's version, and maybe given his predecessor, George W. Bash, the workers' response to a bit of Saudi murder, Donald could invade evil Afghanistan and evil Iraq. Oh, no, silly me, he can't. He he still is bringing liberation to those countries. Oh, well, good excuse to invade evil, evil, evil Iran. Back here this week, evil unions and workers invaded the streets of Melbourne, among other places, bringing class warfare onto the streets, disrupting business and so incensing Lord Rupert of Wapping and the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, no longer Fairfax lots. Don't they, the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers, know the economy can't afford their outrageous demands like decent wages and conditions unless they do something about their productivity which has achieved nothing more than record profits? I mean, the productivity the caring employers are so upset about shows how lazy they are and asking for decent wages in those circumstances highlights their avarice. And thinking there is some sort of vague relationship between record profits and wages also shows they have no concern whatever for the interests of the hard-working shareholders. I keep saying I don't know why caring employers bother to employ workers at all. They're such a drag on the economy. It's clearly just the goodness of their big, big hearts, which must burst at the selfishness of evil unions and lazy avaricious workers holding a huge rally, demanding more of those profits. What's that doing for productivity in this country? Finally, and I've no idea why Donald's fake news claims remind me of this, the government has promised an energy policy which will save us all up to $800 plus a year. Uh, That's all of us uh, scuttle them. Look, we have found one customer in outback Queensland who will save $800 plus a year if the stars are in alignment. Uh, But the department says savings will be more like $100 or so. I hope you're not suggesting we're trying to mislead people. After all, we heard what the electorate said and have taken the lessons on board. Goodness, though, we'd never suggest that because we don't have to. And the good news through all these exciting announcements and great savings is that addressing climate change will take care of itself which it has to because the government's doing nothing about it, but scuttle them and the gang of deniers tell us they can address that which they deny without lifting, lifting or doing anything. And with our governments not doing anything, that's the safest thing. Good morning. We'd never do that, Freddie. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. 
Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full, $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. you are. This is Solidarity Breakfast and we've got a full house again. Can't get rid of them. (laughs) So Tilly, tell us what's uh, coming up next. So we have Michael here in the studio from RAFRU, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, and we're going to have a chat about his position as union delegate for Woolworths. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you do, Michael? Yeah. um, Thanks for having me on. Um, So um, I've been working as a a Woolworths employee for a few years now. and uh, really got involved with RAFWU um, and now a delegate um, at, the, at the store in Woolworths. Um, and the through, Smith Street one? Yeah, yeah, and just up on, on Smith Street. Um, and through getting involved in RAFWU, I was also able to be a committee member um, and a bargaining representative in the recent um, Woolworths Enterprise Bargaining Agreements. So what's the recent Woolworths Enterprise Bargaining Agreements and how does it differ from the... 2012 agreement. Right. Um, so the 2012 one um, was um, positive in some ways and negative in, in, negative in others. Um, major companies um, under the current industrial laws um, are required to come up with an EBA every every a few years. Um, and so in 2018, um, both the SDA and the Meatworkers Union um, and RAFWU all met with Woolworths um, as they work out wages conditions yeah um and yeah it, it was really interesting being in that room um because it so this was recently yeah this was just in april i believe um it was the so it's a, like every three years you meet up well so, so you, it, the, if i jump in here mm, um yeah. the uh the issues around this is that the big corporations big companies like Woolworths, mm. are making deals that where they're hoping to suppress wages, re- remove penalty rates by creating a system of payment that appears to uh, a slightly higher rate of pay per 
per mm-hmm. hour, which is supposed to take into account all these other things. So, for example, mm. meat workers who are livid at this, yeah. um, who work in places like coal store, uh, you know, very arduous kind of conditions are being told that uh, they only need two changes of clothing for a year um, when, you know, they're chopping up bloody meat. Um, They're being told that uh, they can't get an allowance for being in sub-zero conditions for... How many hours? Yeah, no, and I think it's also really important to note, like the way that these agreements actually go down um, in terms of the conversation and the way that they are they are sold to members. Um, I so said there was a vote on the agreement between the 11th and the 22nd of October. Um, an agreement, an agreement passed by 93% of a vote. Um, but when you look at it closely. Um, and there is, as you said, like a mild in increase in wages, I think around 20 cents. Um, and at penalty rates, they have been res- res- restored um, off the back of the Fair Work Commission um, ruling it last year. Um, Which was that uh, the agreement that was struck, mm. didn't pass the boot test. Yes. It was not. And the boot test is that it the agreement wasn't better overall than the previous agreement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, um, it's really important on that point as well, because RAFWU is currently representing one of our members um, that is in the Affiliate Commission um, taking issue of back pay um and this guy is making an argument that over the past uh six or so years under the 2012 eba agreement um um, he has lost around about um thirty thousand dollars isn't that huge yeah and and that's not the smallest amount that i've heard of um and because they don't want to pay back pay yeah how come he wasn't paid properly well, um, well, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah, that's a question on everybody's <laughs> lips, right? <laughs> but yeah, um, 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 so as Annie said, like in the agreement in 2012 was, I said to have passed the boot test, the better off overall test, um, and it may have been better off um, for certain people on certain rosters out of the over 100, 1,000 employees um, of Woolworths and um, similarly for calls across uh, Australia, there may have been one roster on one week in which all the workers, and they were better off overall, and and these companies are going to use those singular examples as an example of, yeah, everyone on the roster is absolutely better off, and therefore this should be the pay scale um, of everybody in Australia. Isn't that cheeky? Because that's what they do. It is. I went to the Fair Work Commission, one of these cases, and they were very restrictive about which rosters were allowed. Mm -hmm. And what was so impressive about RAFU is its um, doggedness uh, and clear-sightedness in their attacks for widening the view mm. that is given to the Fair Work Commission before it makes its decisions. Yeah, um, and this is the case that's in the Fair Work Commission at the moment. Um, we we have been um, 
asking Woolworths for the specific documents and the rosters and the, of which they made up the 2012 decision, um, which they always kept as a secret. Um, and a federal commission has ruled Woolworths has to get back to us and they have to give us the documents. Um, um, so at this point, we're looking for a golden a golden piece of paper um, that may or may not exist anymore, but um, if you find this piece of paper that said that, and they knowingly um, chose one roster over another, um, so that they could targetly underpay people, then um, and the entire um, 2012 agreement will be retrospectively terminated, and um, and thousands and thousands of members across Australia, and it will get back pay. Um, so is that, is that currently happening yes. that review that's yep. amazing yeah that yep. is awesome yeah and and um i think the retail and fast food what is the union retail and fast food industry is very a particular um and it is made up largely of young people um also there's like an entire older generation as well but mm-hmm. um with these young with these young people more often than not, they're just really happy to have a job, um, and they're not going to notice the mm. a tiny difference in between um, twenty one point eight five versus twenty one point eight. And I find like I'm also working for the um, University of Melbourne, a student union at the moment, um, and I find that a lot of young people, even if they're working around like fifteen twenty hours a week, they um, they don't. I think of themselves as workers. They think of themselves as students at the, at the same time while they're working. Yeah. Um, so I think the main challenge um, for RAFWU is really engaging all these young people. And the raising one- the consciousness that yeah. they can participate in unionism. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, I think without you, without that your union, these mm. workers would be just completely exploited continuously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also. Yeah, um, 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 so my experience in the union, um, I've been working at Woolworths for years, as I mentioned, but like, is that, um, yeah, like you can take an active role in your workplace. Um, and, uh, I mean, you don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to be a union thug, but like, and you can be, uh, assertive with management. Um, if you know the rules, what they can and can't do. Um, I was interested in the fact that you actually sit in negotiations. You've actually yes. sat in negotiations. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Because, uh, I mean, what people most fear is confrontation. <laughs> yeah, I mean... And especially working for Woolworths as well and mm-hmm. then being part of the negotiations at the same time. Yeah, uh, I think it's really important to note that RAFWU was the only union in the room um, out of the meat workers in the SDA had actual Woolworths workers in the room. Um, so a bunch of us all flew up to um, Sydney for a day. We all wore Woolworths uniforms on, like, the 30th floor of this massive high-rise building, um, and we're all sitting across from all uh, from all these older men and women wearing suits, and we were the only workers in the room. And that, um, like, uh, even though the confrontation um, is not my natural... Um, well, yeah, whether to hold myself, but um, sitting in a very unique, uh, a sort of position in which we were the only workers in the room, um, it really gave me a lot of confidence. And also the 
the support as well of Josh um, Cullinan, um, that is a, a fantastic unionist um, and is the general uh, secretary of RAFWU. That's it. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, having these tall towers in a uh, rarefied uh, human-made environment mm-hmm. it divorces these decision-makers from mm-hmm. the uh, real workplaces that they're making decisions for. It's a fascinating thing to bring workers into that space. Yeah, well, and there was around about a week later, a few weeks later, um, which we'd had a a phone conference with Woolworths and the SDA, um, and I was actually working at Woolies. Um, I was at the service desk. I was serving customers, um, and one of the negotiators, a representative, a people um, from the SDA walked up um, and asked him what he thought of bargaining this morning. We had a little bit of a chat. There was definitely a, a definitely a divide there. I found that really funny. Yeah, yeah, very, <laughs> but empowering as well. Yeah, no, of course. Um, I mean. Uh, we are definitely learning quite a lot um, about EBAs and bargaining, um, but it is quite empowering. Um, with the new agreement, as it was um, passed around about a week ago, um, they, um, as you mentioned, they will sell um, certain elements of it as being really positive, like wage increases, return of penalty rates. But um, I just wanted, I just wanted to sort of note that um, that in this agreement, especially, we've also seen this in um, the Coles agreement last year, um, also the Macca's agreement that's coming in at the moment, is that um, if you have increases in wage in, in penalty rates. Um, um, for overtime hours or for night fill hours, um, and that are not matched at the same time with a protections of working conditions, then um, it is it means nothing. Yeah. What it, does that? Look, what kind of conditions? Right. Um, well, would yeah. I would I be right in saying um, mm. perfect question? Uh, would I be right in saying that uh, you may not get any night fill yep. hours? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that when you work? No, no, no. Uh, no, but if you're going to get an increase uh, in pay for night fill hours, then they say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you any night fill hours. Uh, right. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah, no, it costs, like, it costs them more. Like, it does. Um, and they say, all right, well, in, if we're able to balance um, them actually packing all of the uh, shelves throughout the day, yeah. well, so we the have order, them on at night. Yeah, and so you have workers who do normal stuff mm. will now have to do more stuff mm-hmm. during the day. Yeah, and, uh, and there are technically... Mm. Um, some conditions in the agreement, like Woolworths agreement, it said that um, there will not be any changes um, to a workers' roster unless um, the workers sign on to a new agreement. But they've been strongly encouraged yeah, to sign the agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah honestly, <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and so. Have you been presented the agreement, or have you heard that lots of people have been presented a new contract to sign? Yeah, well, um, the pay increases, yeah, for overnight workers. Um, so I haven't, um, I haven't, I seen it at Woolworths. Um, as the new pay increases don't come along uh, until after Christmas, but one of my a very good friends' mothers um works at Coles um and she's worked there for upwards of 10 years um and she enjoys the flexibility of the overnight roster um and um she's been asked once twice three times 
in order to assign a new contract. Um, she thinks this is really unfair. Um, and, um, and, uh, but she felt that there wasn't any other option. Like, it was either the, I'm going to sign the new mm-hmm. roster, or get a cut of hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Have right. the reduced flexibility yep. when they work in the daytime. Yeah, yeah, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 now, what you're saying tell, gives people a clue to why, how important it is to be part of a union that will yeah. fight for them. Yep. Uh, but also because you've become more empowered as a delegate, you're able to communicate more mm-hmm. with the people around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, obviously, people from across stores uh, and uh, employers are now talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is really a, a community that has come out in support of Rafu. Um We have just started bargaining at... McDonald's, um, and the amount, uh, and, and the amount of uh, friends that have reached out to me and said, like, go for them. Yeah, absolutely. Our younger brother is like, is like, at sixteen, and he's working for Macca's. Um, exactly what's going on? You reckon you could have a talk to him? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I bring him up. Like, but, but um, yeah, it it is a slowly growing movement. Um, but Ruffalo's only been around for. Very short time. Yeah, like a year or two, in 2016. Um, and so the word is definitely getting out in the industry and that we are there. We are a fighting union that is going to take on these institutionalised issues, and not only in the, in the industry, with the industrial laws across the board. Because what's interesting is that when you look at uh, that uh, junior wage that's going mm-hmm. on, because uh, if people want to catch up with this, Stick Together, Matt Kunkel's uh, program a couple of weeks ago does a great interview with Josh Cullinan from RAFU about the junior wages at McDonald's. Uh, and uh, uh, what McDonald's is doing is growing... us. Uh, where RAFU is creating a community of fight back... McDonald's for years and employers of this nature have been creating a group of young workers who feel that they have no choices, that uh, they're disempowered, that once they get to a certain age, they're no longer employable, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. It's, yeah. it, it's complete. It, it, we've got these two things, two forces going on at the same time. And people have always thought that uh, normalised the junior wage by saying that, you know, at least it's giving a kid a, 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 a leg up and, uh, you know, they can get a, a good reference and all that sort of stuff. But actually, that's not what's been given at all. No, like, I think it's also really important to note that um, if, absolutely, if you're giving job opportunities to young people, like, we all need to go through that process. I've worked... Yeah. I've worked in, I've worked in fast food um, and... and one of my first jobs, but like, um, it's important to note that a junior rate as structure, um, and not only um, pays young people less, but provides in in disincentives for paying older people That's right. to work a job that a young person could do just as easily and for cheaper. Um, so at Woolworths, um, if you were able, uh, and to hire a, a 16 or a, a 17 year old for um, a 70, 75% of the award wage, why would you offer a salary to a, 
a 35-year-old, a 45-year-old mother has been at the company um, for a few years. Yeah, and the thing about it is that it's marketed by government and by these uh, these employers as doing everybody a favour, but in actual fact, they're... um, they're undermining the working conditions of the entire Australian population, and people should be alert. And they're making a a fortune off it as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting to me that because uh, this has been going on for a long time, me being long in the tooth, but <laughs> people's learn- lived experience is finally being shown t- uh, to the mirror. Because years ago, there used to be these uh, when when they used to develop film as opposed to before digital, um, there used to be these uh, photo places where they, as, and I used to know people uh, who used to work there, they'd get a job there. As soon as they were 18, they were fired. Yep. Because, um, you know, cost too much. But everybody knew that. It was the lived experience of the people all around me. Yeah. Um, a, a similar practice is the... The summer job approach, yeah, um, in which um, you're hired in November, um, and they actually uh, under the agreement they can't uh, fire you um, in January or February when the business it dies down for the year. But since they don't have um, the working conditions um, enshrined in their EBA, they would just uh, stop offering you. Uh, so yes. offering you more hours. Is this for casual staff as well? Like the yep. idea of a Christmas casual. Well, that's yep. why they want them insecure. That's why they want this insecure work framework. Mm-hmm. Yep. And of course, workers we know are breatharians. They don't need food or shelter. Or... Oh, and, <laughs> and the most <laughs> never heard that one. Good one. <laughs> and the most uh, disgusting case I heard was um, a friend of mine that worked. At McDonald's years and years ago, um, and experienced workplace bullying and uh, some sexual harassment on the job. Um, and when she complained about these uh, to her manager, um, she said, oh, "I'll look into it." It never happened. Um, and so she said, "Okay, I'm going to go to my union and mention that um, to her manager." And manager then turned around and said, "Okay, well, um, we have a footage of you." eating a food while on the job, and that's a criminal offence. If you talk to the union, not only will we fire you, but we'll take you to the cops. Um, and she never raised it again and <sighs> soon left the job. And I just think that's absolutely disgusting. Absolutely. Yeah, the culprits never get yeah. caught. So yeah. that's why RAFRU is like predominantly based off young people who are in mm-hmm. the industry who are fighting back. So Yeah, and, and I suppose the difficulty is a lot of these young people, like myself even, um, we are just wrapping our heads around these issues um, uh, and uh, trying to talk to other people, other young people about it. But it is a primarily an organisation that is run by young people like the president. Um, she is 26 um, and, and she's worked at Woolworths um, for years and years while doing university. Um, I'm, a member of the, I'm a member of the committee um, and... Um, involved in a large strategic and decision-making 
processes of the university, of, of the union, sorry. Um, so they, would you expect people to contact RAFU through online? Yeah, um, you check us out on Facebook. We're very responsive. Um, add to your messages and your emails. I really recommend that you join up as a member. Um, and yeah, we have um, we have some activist groups that occur regularly, which we organise um, social media campaigns and those kind of things. So yeah, yeah, get involved. Thank you for coming in, Michael, and letting us know. Yeah, Rafa. thank no you very much. And Rafu is um, R A F F W U, Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, and that's we're come we've come to the end of Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we uh, had a bit from Rob Starry uh, at the Peter Norman Social Justice Forum. We talked to Lizzie Kuno, uh, Kunuth about uh, uh, education uh, opportunities for South Sudanese refugees and the things that people should be looking at. We talked to Warren Kurt about Suburbia, a new book of Images of Melbourne, fantastic book. And we just spoke to Michael Aglu. About Rafu. So coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with this great singer, Kate Vigo, just because uh, she's great. See you next week. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.